the observer. When my father finally arrived at the beginning of 1940, everyone was still living at the apartment in Warsaw. He had walked from Łódź a distance of about a hundred kilometers. My father cut his hair and payers, but he spoke very little Polish and still had a closely cropped beard, so I don't know how he managed to travel without getting caught, especially since at that time a border had been established around Łódź, making it part of the greater German Reich, and he had to smuggle himself out. The Nazis had big plans for Łódź and incorporated the city into the Reich so it would become part of Germany in a new area called Wartegau or Warteland. They changed the name of Łódź to Litzmannstadt and renamed all the street in German. Their plan had been to expel all the Polish Jews and Polish Gentiles from Łódź, but it didn't work out because as they initiated the evacuation, there was such panic and chaos, transportation was a challenge, and gathering places were mobbed, that they eventually decided to leave all the Polish Gentiles in Łódź and establish a ghetto for the Jews. I don't exactly know how my father managed to get through, or what route he took to get to Warsaw, but it took him about two months, a journey that today takes about 45 minutes by car. In those days, it was three hours by train. He said he walked at night and managed to hide during the day with friendly farmers. Poland was full of forest, so when he was in a forested area, there was some protection. He was able to cover himself with leaves and snow so he could sleep during the day and have the strength to start walking again at night in the deep snow and freezing temperatures. Perhaps he sometimes managed to pay someone with a horse and buggy to give him a ride. I am sure that my father and his appearance at the apartment must have been emotional, but strangely, I don't remember it. I was a peculiar young boy, a bit of an introvert. I spent a lot of my time by myself, didn't have friends, and didn't get involved in much. I observed quite a lot and I feel that most important things I saw or experienced are stuck in my memory. That's how I am to this day. My father must have brought with him some money and jewelry to sell, because he was able to start searching for a place for us to live right away. Seventeen people couldn't continue to live together in that small apartment. He soon found a tiny apartment in a four- or five-story building at the corner of Ulice Nailewki and Mila. Ulica Mila later became a famous street during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which started on April 19, 1943. Mila 18 was the headquarters of the underground uprising. The front of the building where our apartment was had been destroyed by a bomb at the beginning of the war. The three quadrants at the back were left intact, and we lived on the side right next to the destroyed front. We used half of the apartment as a bedroom for the four of us, and the other half as kitchen. There was a toilet in the corner, but the communal bathroom, which had a bathtub in it, was in the hallway. 
Later on, once the ghetto was created in October 1940 and more people were forced into that area, the Judenrat allocated the additional people to live in apartments that had two or three rooms. Seven or eight people were put in a room, depending on its size. People didn't want to live like that, and there was a lot of screaming and yelling, but a lot of people couldn't even find a place to live. We were lucky that our place was so small that the Judenrat couldn't push any more people in. But even though we didn't have anybody living with us on a day-to-day basis, during the time of the ghetto, my father used to bring people to sleep on the floor at night if they had nowhere to go. Once we moved into the apartment, my father had to find a way to make a living. He was a winemaker. That's what he knew how to do. And so he set up a winemaking operation in the kitchen of our tiny apartment. Before the ghetto was established, there was still a kind of quasi-normalcy in Warsaw, and you could buy items on the black market if you had money. So he bought raisins and got a small barrel to ferment the raisins in with sugar. He managed to clarify the must and have the wine drip into another container through a contraption he made of four linen pouches. Then he would brown sugar to give the wine a color that made it look like real Kiddush wine. There was still a community of 350,000 Jews in Warsaw then who were making Friday night suppers, and they would order wine from him. I would put on my rucksack and deliver the wine in small or large bottles, depending on what they asked for, and collect the money. I don't know where my father got the cork. Perhaps he bought them on the black market too. But he enlisted me to go looking for empty bottles. I used to stand outside cafes and places where people threw out empty bottles, and I would bring the bottles home. My father would immerse them in water for three days and make them kosher, and then he would take off the original labels. He also found a little kiosk for my mother on the ground floor of a building not far from our apartment. Also on Ulitsa Nalewki, where she sold sweets and chocolates and cigarettes that people would buy individually or if they had money by the packet. You entered the kiosk by a narrow door at the back and stood and sold goods at the window which faced the street. Since I was always running around the streets looking at what was going on, I would come into the kiosk by the little entrance at the back where there were a few shelves on which she stored the packets of candies and cigarettes. I always searched for one particular sweet called krufki, which means little cow. That was wrapped in yellow paper with a portrait of a cow. It was fudge made from condensed milk and sugar. I would steal these little sweets while my mother worked the window, and even though she always told me that I mustn't do that, she never stopped me, and she looked away when she saw me taking them. In 2002, when I came back to Poland for the first time, I went into a sweet shop, and there in large glass containers were the same krówki exactly like the ones my mother had sold. I immediately felt as if my mother were standing right there in front of the window. That's how strongly I connected those candies 
to my mother. So my parents were making a living in our little apartment in Warsaw, where the four of us slept together in one bedroom. My mother sold sweets and cigarettes during the day, and at night my father would make wine in the kitchen. In the meantime, Jews were being rounded up and beaten. Our existence was constantly worsening. The rationing continued and it became difficult to get food like honey, jam, and cooking oil. Everything was ersatz, made from ingredients other than proper ones. My mother used to get artificial honey and jam that was made of beetroot. For cooking, she would now only get rapeseed oil, which was not well refined and had a sickening smell and taste. Despite all that, because of my father's ability to provide for us, we were never hungry in Warsaw, not in the ghetto, not ever. My parents, particularly my father, watched us like hawks. When I think of him now, it is as if he had angels' wings which he gathered us in and guarded us as best as he could. He was mild-mannered but quite brave, and when it came to his family, his main concern was to look after us and save us. This life lasted for a little while, and then, in the middle of 1940, people began talking about a ghetto. Fortunately, our apartment and my mother's little kiosk would be in the ghetto because Nalewki was one of the streets in Warsaw where many Jews lived. So we continued to live there right through until the end, even when the Warsaw Ghetto was divided in half. In November 1940, the ghetto was closed and life grew much more difficult. My father somehow still managed to get raisins on the black market to make wine after the ghetto was closed off. But my mother's kiosk lasted for only another six months or so. Either she couldn't get the items she needed anymore, or people didn't have any more money to buy them. It might also have been that it was too difficult for her to deal with the black market. Maybe she wasn't strong enough to hustle. Before the war, she was a lady who didn't work. So perhaps she could only work the kiosk as long as she needn't need to be too pushy, which she didn't have the mentality for. After the kiosk closed, my mother would bake chalaban, which became the main source of income for our little family. On Thursdays or Fridays, my parents would give me addresses and I would go around to deliver both wine and chalas and then bring back the money to them. At the time, life in the Warsaw Ghetto had the air of a schizophrenic normality. Although life was difficult, it wasn't so horrible that we couldn't live. For instance, schools were forbidden, but they existed nonetheless. My father found a melamed, a teacher, who taught a few children in secret, and I studied the Talmud with him. We studied the book Nadarim, or Vows, which is challenging with its Perush commentary by Ran, the acronym for the name of Rabbinism ben Ruven of Gerona. I looked forward to the diversion of those classes, and I liked the teacher. It was not systemic study, mainly discussion, and I enjoyed that as well, but it didn't last long. 
Before the ghetto was closed, it was easier to get things on the black market because food wasn't that expensive and people could sell clothes or other belonging to the Poles. And people were still working, so the situation was not dire. But the moment the ghetto was closed, everything became difficult and restricted, especially the rationing of food. And hunger started to kill people. German civilians got 2,613 calories of official food rations a day. But truly, the Germans could go and help themselves to more if they wanted to. Nobody was going to stop them. If a Volksdeutsche or German walked into a shop, no Polish shopkeeper was going to tell them that they couldn't have a loaf of bread or a piece of sausage. For Polish people, the rations were 699 calories a day. But for Jews, the rations were 184. Fewer calories than a typical chocolate bar. By the beginning of 1941, the situation deteriorated even more quickly, and we started seeing dead bodies in the streets. At first, only a few, but when more people were brought into the ghetto, at one point, 400,000 or more Jews were living in the ghetto. Before the onset of resettlement, hundreds of people lay dying in the streets. Some people, desperate, would strip the bodies and sell their clothes to the Poles, who still had permission to come into the ghetto at the time or exchange items for food. The lack of sanitation was horrible, and there was a tremendous amount of disease like tuberculosis, typhus, and pneumonia. My uncle Moshe Schloim Levinson died during this time, I think from tuberculosis. My father attended his funeral, and he was buried in the Warsaw Ghetto Cemetery. There was a Hevre Kaddisha, a burial society in the ghetto. But with so many dead bodies in the streets, it became harder and harder for the society's members to bury them in individual graves. They had to dig a huge pit in the cemetery to accommodate the number of bodies they were faced with. The burial society didn't have enough people to help or enough wooden carts to wheel all the bodies to the cemetery. So they grabbed men off the streets to help and gave them wheelbarrows to pile the dead bodies in. One day, I saw a scene that no one should see. I watched as rows of people walked with wheelbarrows full of dead bodies to the cemetery, and I saw them tip the bodies, some half-dressed and some naked, into the pit, like garbage. These poor souls had no Kaddish prayer for the dead said for them or anything else required for a respectful Jewish burial. They were just bodies being dumped into a pit like animals might be. In total, approximately 90,000 Jews died in the Warsaw Ghetto of hunger and disease. The current Jewish cemetery in Warsaw still displays the pit which is a mass grave and has become a depression in the earth because when a body is buried, at first it moves as it bloats and then it disintegrates and becomes a skeleton, making the ground shift and collapse. The Warsaw Ghetto was mayhem, apocalyptic hell. 
the Judenrat organized what the Germans demanded and established a Jewish police force that wore blue bands around their police heads. A Jewish prison, a Jewish fire brigade, a Jewish post office. This gave us the semblance of self-government, but we weren't self-governed. The Gestapo would come every day and tell Adam Chernyakov, the head of the Judenrat, what we could and could not do, and how many people to supply them for forced labor. There were also for a short time a group known as the Jewish Gestapo that comprised informers and collaborators who worked with the Germans. We called them the Chinastka, which is Polish for 13, because they had their own headquarters at Ulica Leszno number 13. They wore police hats with green bands on them to distinguish them from the many other groups put in place to keep the Jews in check. The Nazis set up factories inside the ghetto in addition to those they already had outside the ghetto to produce for the war effort. On the inside, factories were set up to make uniforms, brushes, shoes, and other things for the army. Jewish tailors, seamstresses, and shoemakers were thus able to work and get a little bit of money and a little more food but it still was not enough to feed the family. I don't know what was being made outside the ghetto, but every day columns of Jews went out of the ghetto to work. I often stood at the ghetto gate where there were always two German gendarmes and Polish policemen standing on what was known as the Aryan side, and Jewish policemen who stood on the inside of the gate all watching to check that no one was trying to escape the work details. Sometimes Jews would be taken away for a week to work and not all would come back. There was death and despair at every turn. Profiteers and black marketeers took advantage of the situation and made money. It's ironic, but the collaborators and the smugglers saved a lot of people from hunger because they, together with the Nazis, brought food into the ghetto. There was nothing you couldn't get in the ghetto if you had money, including proper burial in the cemetery. It was all about bribery and corruption, and some people made money off the backs of those who were suffering. There were cafes where people played music and danced and drank wine. I would stand outside these cafes as I was rummaging for empty bottles and smell the geese being roasted, while two feet away there was a dead body lying in the street. As a Hasidic boy, I didn't know of females and males and sex, but when I was standing outside one of these cafes where people were having fun, I would often see extremely well-dressed women walking up and down the street. Men would come up to them, they would talk for a few moments, and they would disappear together. Some 20 minutes or half an hour later, the woman would come back and walk up and down the street again. I always wondered what kind of business they were doing. It took me years to understand what it was about. So many terrible things were going on in the Warsaw Ghetto 
1941 and in the first half of 1942 that if you weren't there, you really can't understand it. Even if you were there, you can't understand it. But I always say that it is important for people to know that despite many in the Judenrat who did the bidding of the Nazis, the brutal Jewish police, the dreaded Jewish Gestapo, and the profiteers among them, there were some who were not bad and did try to help. There was always resistance to what was forbidden. There were lots of underground newspapers, underground schools for the children, universities where professors had smuggled in research materials, and people were being taught, some of them, to become doctors. People were able to send parcels from abroad and within Poland to the Jewish post office. I think many of the parcels were stolen by the Germans, the Jewish police, and the Jewish post office workers, but some of them did get through to the people who needed them, and there was an enormous amount of passive resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto by people who risked their own existence to help others. There was one man, a famous man, by the name of Emmanuel Ringenblum, who organized people to collect any information relating to ghetto life. His organization, Onek Shabbat, buried thousands of archival documents in tin and milk cans, many of which miraculously were discovered after the war. By 1941, the food situation had become so dire that people were dying in the streets on a daily basis, and Ringelblum and his followers set up a soup kitchen to give people at least a bowl of soup and a piece of bread. His was not the only soup kitchen in the ghetto, but setting these up was not easy to do. Wealthy Jews, and there were still quite a few then in the Warsaw Ghetto, were urged or coerced into giving money to assist in buying bread and making the soup so that the starving could be fed. Synagogues and halls were open to the homeless, and every effort was made to try and help those who were living on the streets in the middle of winter. As I mentioned, my father, too, did what he could by bringing people to our apartment at night to sleep on the floor in the kitchen. I particularly remember one man who my father used to allow to sleep in our apartment. This man was covered in boils, and my mother would get angry and say to my father, How can you bring him here? The kids are going to get ill. But my father was such a good person, and he continued to do what he felt was right. Even if this world exists for a thousand million trillion light years, no one could ever be able to tell all the stories of the Warsaw Ghetto during the years from 1940 until the end of the uprising in the middle of 1943. And I, this little boy, saw it all. I watched the depravity and the kindness, people doing business, children selling cigarettes, women prostituting themselves. I saw every aspect of humanity from evil to goodness. I saw people living and dying in the streets and Jewish police beating children who were trying to stay alive by stealing a potato and selling it. I saw Germans beating Jews, 
and German officers conducting tours of the ghetto with cameras, smiling and laughing and pulling Jewish beards and payers and giving out sweets to the children as if to little animals in a zoo. I was taking it in, but I couldn't truly comprehend. This made only a visual impact on me, not an emotional response, but a physical reaction. As a child, I didn't have the intellect or the understanding to rationalize what I saw, and I couldn't relate it to my experience of life up to that point. I simply photographed everything my eyes saw with an impersonal camera and stored these images in my brain. In a normal life, dying is a normal activity of the human race. You are born, you grow, and become educated. Hopefully, you get married, have children, and maybe grandchildren, and then if you're lucky, you live to a ripe old age and die. That's normal. But to me, back then, death was something you had to fight against. It was the enemy. I had one friend during the time in the ghetto, a boy who lived in the apartment next to ours, and who was the nephew of the Gera Rebbe. We spent time together playing in the yard and talking. He died sometimes in 1942, and I saw people perform the ritual washing of his body in the bathroom everyone on our floor used for bathing. Seeing the water flow down the drain felt to me like his life, his soul, was literally going down the drain as well. I still to this day cannot have a bath because of this experience. This image made an enormous impression on me. It was particularly painful to me because actually I had a relationship with that boy. To me, there was a real person inside the body. I was constantly surrounded by death. It felt like it cornered me, and this has damaged me to this day. I can't relate to death like other people do. Death was always constantly an enemy to fight. I have an extreme phobia towards death. It creates a kind of havoc inside me. I was not concerned about being separate for the rest of the population. We had always been separate and lived separate lives. It was the extreme level of anxiety and the feelings that grown-ups always gave me that I had to be scared for my life. Wherever I saw a German, I would run away. I knew that I had to be afraid. If I spy the German officer, a soldier, or even an ordinary German walking or driving by, I would make myself scarce. A Jew had to take off his head if he saw a German, and I didn't want to take off my head. But if I tell you that it was because I was trying to send them a defiant message by not taking off my head, it would be untrue. I knew that if I took off my head, they would notice me and I didn't want to draw attention to myself. I believe that this was the beginning of my discovering ways to make myself invisible. When I was later incarcerated in the concentration camps, I always tried to make myself invisible and stay away from anyone who might want to do me harm. It was self-defense. For the first time in my life, I felt threatened as a human being, and I was afraid. It was the feral fear of the unknown 
and of being powerless and alone in the face of mortal danger. Life in the ghetto was, as I mentioned, schizophrenic. I don't know what else to call it. As time passed, more people were dying on the streets, and there were informers everywhere, ready to turn you in for any real or imagined infraction, if it would get them an extra bite of bread. How anyone could possibly have survived in the Warsaw Ghetto is still an absolute mystery to me. In order to survive at that time, my emotions and feelings shut down and to some extent have remained that way to this day. I cannot allow myself to let go, to be spontaneous. I always feel a sense of uncertainty and fear. I knew I could be killed in the ghetto. And I knew that even more later, in the concentration camps and the death camps where I had to pray that no one noticed me if I wanted to live through a day. This affected me. Although being able to shut myself off saved me, it also hurt me.